Let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be in the latter half of the chapter, so you can find Galatians 3, starting in verse 23 on page 974 in the black Bibles around you. Page 974. If you're not familiar with the Bible, those black ones, if you just look at the top, the page numbers, when I say chapter, those are the large numbers, and the verses are the small black numbers next to sentences, so we can find where we're at. As a church, we've been committed from the beginning of our church to study books of the Bible together, and so we will pick up where we left off a week ago to continue studying through this book called Galatians. As you have already been made aware of, this passage of Scripture has the theme of adoption, about being children of God, sons and daughters. A few of our church members have adopted biologically, so this week I asked them to share a little bit of their perspective or things that they've learned through the adoption process, through biological adoption. One of them said, first and foremost is that even though biological adoption is great, even though biological adoption has wonderful things involved in it, ups and downs, challenges, etc., but it's a wonderful ministry, there is nothing that tops the spiritual adoption taught in the scriptures about God adopting us. Another couple said that they've been asked whether or not it's difficult to love their adopted child like their own child, their own biological children. And they said not at all for a second. Because of knowing about the spiritual adoption, the way God has received us as his children, for them, they have realized that God has taught them now to treat their children, adopted and biological, all equal, all the same. There's so much we can learn from our brothers and sisters around us, from other Christians who have done biological adoption, as we consider this gigantic metaphor in the scriptures here, as we're about to read. And there was a story I came across, a man named Russell Moore has adopted some children, and he has a book on adoption, about his biological adoptions, but then also the Bible's teaching on adoption. And in that book, he writes this story that I think paints the perfect picture for today's message. So, listen along and see and hear this picture. When my wife Maria and I received the long and awaited call that the legal process was now over, we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons. We found that their transition from an orphanage to a family was much more difficult than we had assumed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel. We walked out into the sunlight to the terror of these two young boys. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind blow on their face. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles an hour down the road. And then... I noticed the two boys shaking. As they started to reach back to the orphanage in the distance. And this right here, if I would pause, is the picture I want you to see. The picture of these two boys reaching for the orphanage. He goes on. I started to whisper to my son, Sergei. His name is now Timothy. That place is a pit. If only you knew what was waiting for you. A home with a mom and dad who love you, grandparents, great-grandparents, cousins, playmates, McDonald's Happy Meals. All they have ever known was the orphanage. It was filthy. But if that's all you ever know, then that's all they've ever known as home. 
We knew the boys would acclimate to our home, that they would trust us. They would stop hiding food in their high chairs, thinking that they would never get a meal again. They knew that at one point there would be another meal coming and that they wouldn't have to fight each other for the scraps. This was now the new normal. They were becoming thoroughly Americanized, perhaps even too much so. They were able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from yards away in the house. I still remember those little hands reaching back for the orphanage, and I see myself there. I want to go see the orphanage one more time. When the boys are little, older maybe, maybe when they're 12 or 14, I want to take them on a trip again. I want them to see, to feel, and know where they came from. It's so hard to imagine now what they'll think of it. My guess is they'll probably hate Russian food as much as I do. They will look forward to slipping off and going down to Moscow and eating McDonald's wherever we can find it. At the orphanage, I'm sure their eyes will open wide as we walk up those cracking steps into the horror movie-looking front door. They'll probably go limp inside, just like I did, when they see all those abandoned toddlers peering out from the corners of the doors inside. Maybe they'll try to replay in their minds the circumstances of the night from which they were born into. I don't know what they'll think, but I'm quite sure of this. They won't call it home anymore. I was not planning to get all choked up, but I hope you see that the power of this story is the power of this passage that we're about to read. And as you think of this story, I want you to have it in your mind as we read it, as we study Galatians. I want this story to help us see ourselves and who we are, who we once were, and just the utter foolishness it would be for us to think we should return back to our orphanages. In other words, I want us to all leave here today and know that the story I just read to you is not just a story of two Russian boys getting adopted by an American family. This is your story. This is our story. This is what Galatians is all about. So turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23 on page 974, and follow along as I read. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a, a child, is, is no different from a slave, Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. 
But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. You may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The outline of this morning's message from this passage is three very simple questions, three life-transforming questions. Who are we? What does that matter? What does it mean? And then how is this possible? Who are we? What are the implications of knowing who we are? And how is this even possible? Question one. Who are we? One word answer. You are sons. Sons. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26 makes that quite plain. Now, before faith came, we were held under the captivity of the law, imprisoned until faith would be revealed, so that then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Who are we? Sons of God through faith. Now it's important for you to realize in the flow of the book of Galatians, the we here is more than likely referring to Israelites, Jews. The we here is those who are under the law. Look at verse 23 and see the context for yourself. Before faith came, we were under the law. Who's under the Old Testament law? Well, Jews are. So Israel was under the captivity of the law, imprisoned by the law, because the law demanded of them obedience, perfect obedience, and if they did not give perfect obedience, they would receive the curse of the law instead of the blessing. And so they were trapped. Not because the law was this terrible taskmaster, not because the law was this terrible jail that imprisoned them, but because of their sin, they were trapped in a situation that they could not get out of by themselves. And that was Paul's point as we were finishing up the the exchange between the Old Testament covenants between Abraham and Moses last week. So as we pick it up where we left off, we see that he's talking about the Old Testament law of Moses, the, the covenant with Moses, and that law becomes imprisonment. It becomes a guardian, and I think one of the best translations of this word guardian here, we could put babysitter or nanny. That's the general idea of this word. In Paul's day, they had wealthy people, and these wealthy people would have slaves like nannies who watch after their kids during the day as they went about their business. They'd be the ones that would take them to school, keep them safe, make sure they stayed out of trouble. So maybe if some of you know about Western civilizations that have au pairs or nannies, do all the taking care of the children, that's the word here. That's the idea. In the Roman civilization, they had that idea, and so the guardian is the nanny. And he's saying that the law functioned like a nanny, and then once you grow up, you don't need a nanny anymore. You can take care of yourself. 
And that's his whole point. Faith has come. Jesus has come. Christ has come. And now that Christ has come, you don't need a nanny. You're you're a grown-up now. Israel is no longer a slave to the law. You are now a son by faith, which was the original idea from the beginning. The first time you hear about the language of sonship is in the book of Exodus. And this whole section of scripture, by the way, that I've been reading to you about slavery and being imprisoned and no longer a slave but a son, you should have in your minds the book of Exodus from beginning to end. Not just because there's these trigger words about slavery, But because that's one of the first places in the Bible that God calls Israel, you will be my son. Israel will be a son of God if you read the language in Exodus chapter 4. Son of God language is not just referred to Jesus. Jesus is the quintessential, the ultimate son of God because Israel failed to be the good, faithful son of God. So the story here in Galatians is about Israel. It's about them being the true son of God and representative on the earth to all the other nations about what a child of God looks like. But because of their sin and their brokenness, they couldn't obey God's law, and they just look like disobedient, rebellious kids all the time, and that wasn't looking very good. God had a better plan. It was to send Jesus, and when Jesus comes into the world, faith comes. He writes the law on people's hearts. And so some of you might be thinking, what does this have to do with me? I'm not a Jew. Some of you might be Jewish. It has a lot to do with you too. Whether you're Jew or not a Jew. Because if we keep reading, look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For anybody who has been baptized into Christ Jesus has put on Christ, has clothed themselves with Christ. Therefore now there is no more distinction between Jew or Greek. It's all those who have faith in Christ. He's talking about all of us. Jew or Gentile, Jew or non-Jew, there's no more slave nor free distinction in the church. There's no more male nor female distinction of hierarchy in the church. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, so if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are in Christ, then you should take the Israel story and say, that's my story too. Now, some of people, think of it this way. To get to the time of Jesus and faith in Jesus, there might be some people that to get to church today, they just walked across the street. And they're really close. And this is close to them, and it's part of their family. And so the distance is short. To be a Jew, to go from Jew to to faith in Jesus, it's like, it's right here. Then there's other people that were kind of carted in from outside. It was as if somebody came to church today instead of just walking across the street because this is their town, this is their community. They came into the church and they came into the church through an airplane or a helicopter. His point is it doesn't matter where you came. You could have come as a Jew. Like, oh, this is my family. This is, this is who I grew up with. This is my town. This is my story. Or you could have been flown in from another foreign country. It doesn't matter. Once we get in the building, we're all the same people. Once we are all in Christ. So who are you today? Your son, if you have faith in Christ. This story is our story. We who are Christians, we should call ourselves sons and daughters. But we should emphasize the idea of son. Many people take offense at being called a son because they're a woman. Well, I don't want to be a son. I want to be a daughter. I think the idea that you're trying to communicate or think is fine. But you're going to miss something. You're going to miss something very big. To call all of the church a son is the equivalent of calling all of the church a bride. This is not about gender offensive language. This is about communicating a truth that would have been very obvious or clear. So when I say all of you, including the men in the room, you are a bride of Christ. You don't, oh no, I don't want to be a woman. You know, like that's not what's going on here. You look at marriage and you think, I understand how marriage works. Jesus is the groom, I'm the bride. It makes sense. So what's the point here? Sons refers to all Christians, male and female. Don't flatten it out as just children of God, even though the idea is right. Make sure you understand that in ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. They could not be heirs. The only time Paul, the apostle, writing this, 
uses the idea of sonship and adoption is when he's writing to people in Roman citizen colonies. Galatians, Romans, Ephesians. Places where in the Roman world it was so common that if you were a wealthy man and you wanted to pass on your inheritance and you know it only goes through the son line, what if you don't have any sons? Do you know what you do? You adopt a son. This is like everyday normal practice in the Roman world. They would have known this concept and idea. You don't adopt a daughter, you adopt a son to pass on the the heritage, the family line, all of the heir Wealth, accumulation of everything of the name passes on to this now new adopted son. In fact, one of the Caesars did this. So it it becomes, think of it this way. Caesar is the most royal, the most wealthy, the most powerful man. And imagine being adopted into Caesar's family. (sighs) I'm an orphan kid. I'm I'm a nobody. And then all of a sudden, I legally become the inheritance of the Roman Empire. Whoa, that's a good day, right? Paul is trying to tell people that know that context. You all, male or female, you are all sons. You are all adopted. You are all getting the inheritance of the Father. He is passing it on to you. So receive the good news of this and don't get all bunched up in your mind or all bent out of shape because you're thinking, well, I'm a girl. This is is gloriously true language. So I'll happily refer to sons and daughters, but don't miss the point here. Don't miss the point of the radical, wonderful claim that's being made. It's so radical and wonderful that he can't just make the statement, you're all sons, he has to meditate on it further. And that's why we have verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4. Listen to the language again in this illustration. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So here he's using this concept about being a child who is the heir of an inheritance, but until the heir of the inheritance passes down to the child, well, then he's just like a slave at that point. And so he's using that as an example of normal, everyday, hey, you might have the inheritance coming your way, but until it comes, you're just as equal as a slave. Verse 2, but under a guardian and manager until the day was set by the father that he would then receive the inheritance, then he gets it. Then it becomes full inheritance is the son's. Think of the prodigal son story. It's a familiar story. He, he's just an ordinary guy until then he asks for and demands all of the inheritance. And then, that, then it's his. And he has all of it. And so there's a day set when the inheritance will come. And so in verse 3, he says, in the same way also, we were these kind of immature children. It means that you're not fully grown to receive the inheritance yet. And we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And this, this means the ABCs of the world, if you want to take the word literally. But in that day, they used this phrase, elementary principles of the world, to talk about how every aspect of the world becomes a god. The fire god, the water god, the cloud god, the sun god, And so these elementary principles of the world is a phrase used in the first century to talk about the pagan idolatry of the Roman Empire. So he says, you were enslaved to this kind of idolatry, but the time came when the inheritance would come. The fullness of time had come, and God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you are a Christian, you were not born biologically into a Christian family. All Christians are born again. They're born into a family through adoption, as it says here. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to be adopted into God's family because of God's initiative, God's love, God's pursuing, God's choosing. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book that has been, I think, recommended 20 times from this pulpit, Knowing God, so for a 21st time, 
Knowing God is an excellent, excellent resource for you to know more about God. And the reason I've done this again and again is because on this point, who are you? You're a son. That will mean very, very little if you don't know who the Father is. If you don't see that the Father is large and big and majestic and owns everything and is giving you an inheritance beyond your wildest dreams. So in other words, the more important question this morning is not who you are, because we get so self-consumed, do we not? The bigger question is whose you are, whose you are. Who owns you? Who adopted you? So J.I. Packer packs out in this book who God is so that you can know whose you are, not just who you are. And in his wonderful chapter on adoption, he says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. And as we get closer to October 31st and the day that we celebrate 500 years of Protestant Reformation and the Protestant Reformation being all centered around why we believe that we are justified by faith. You all remember in chapter 2 when we went over, one of the most important passages in all the Bible is that you are justified and declared righteous by faith. Justification is huge, right? Big deal. Big, big deal. J.I. Packer, are you serious? The highest privilege is not justification, it's adoption. You've got to unpack that more. Oh, so he does. Justification is a legal forensic idea. Justification, as we said a couple weeks ago, is the judge declaring someone guilty or not guilty, and in this case, justification is being declared not guilty. That's good news. If you're a sinner today in this room and you would like to be declared not guilty before God when you die and stand before the almighty judge, there is a way. And it's not by looking at your record or your resume. It is not by bringing anything before you. It is by coming with empty hands and say, I have faith in Jesus. That's justification. That's what makes us Protestant Christians for over 500 years in that tradition. And people have been believing it before the Protestant Reformation. It's what I think Jesus taught. I think it's what Paul teaches here Justification, being declared not guilty. J.I. Packer says, but adoption. Adoption is much richer. It is filled with family language. It is conceived in terms of love. It takes God from viewing him as judge to father. In adoption, God takes us into his family, into fellowship, establishes us as his children and as heirs. Think of the closeness, the affection, and the generosity of the word adoption. To be right with God as judge is surely a great thing, but to be loved, to be cared for by Father, oh, that is far greater. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. Do you know who you are this morning? Do you know whose you are? Do we as a church know that we are sons, we are family, and God is our Father? That's question number one. Question number two, what does this mean? Why does this matter? Does this have any significance for how we live our life? One word answer, yes. It changes everything. Yes, this matters. What does it matter? It matters for everything. One of my biggest regrets for this message is that it is only one message long. I kept thinking again and again, this needs to be 10 messages. Because each of these passages in this section that I read to you, they're all saying the same thing. You're adopted, you're adopted, you're adopted. So I want to say that this morning, you're adopted. But man, is it jam-packed with truth for us that changes everything. So I can only give you, for the sake of time, unless we want to go on for hours and hours, which I don't think most of you do, three things. Three things that it changes. One, it changes the way we look at each other in this church. Two, it changes the way we talk to God in our prayer. And three, it changes the way we talk to each other. So look at each other, talk to God, and talk to each other. One more quote from J.I. Packer. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. 
If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, prayer, and his whole outlook on life, then this person does not understand Christianity very well at all. What does this change? Everything. Worship. How we look at each other, our whole outlook on life. If you don't get this, then you're not getting Christianity. So first, it changes the way we look at each other. Let's look back at chapter 3. And let's see these glorious verses, verse 27 and 28. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't even know if that needs much commentary. Cultural barriers be gone. The church should not be looked at as black versus white, brown versus any other skin color. We should not be seen by our cultural identities first and foremost. We, we are sons. You are an individual who is part of us, corporate, and we, we are a church who has no more cultural barriers that prohibits us from looking at each other as superior to inferior, to looking at one another as better or more self-righteous than the other. We are all one in Christ. We are all leveled, and I mean leveled humble at the cross, because we all realize if we have faith in Christ, then therefore all of us need desperately a Savior. All of us are sinners. There is not a superior race. And think how many atrocities in human history would go away if we believed this. That God's intention for the world is for cultural distinctives to be embraced, to be experienced, to be shared, but not to divide. Can some of you who come from different ethnicities make an ethnic meal and share your ethnicity with us at tables of fellowship and not only keep that within your own ethnic group? That would be ideal. This is not the flattening of ethnic and cultural distinctives where there are no more cultural distinctives. All of us should now look like me. No, that's not what he's saying. Later on in the chapter 4, when he says, brothers, become as I am, I think he's only simply saying, become like me, free from the law. Not become like me and embrace my cultural ethnicity. That's the whole problem in the book of Galatians. People demanding non-Jewish people to be like Jewish people and eat like Jewish people, dress like Jewish people, follow the laws and customs and festivals like Jewish people. We should not and must not do that at this church. We must not divide the church unnecessarily by cultural and ethnic barriers. If you are here today and you are a white evangelical, I want to encourage you to read a book that I read this week called Divided by Faith. It is a helpful resource that would help especially white evangelicals to think through some of the issues about cultural consumption or cultural assumptions that we have that are probably hurting this point, causing greater division rather than greater inclusion. And it was super convicting to me at times, very helpful at other times. And if you can't read the book, since we encourage all kinds of books, we've already encouraged two in this today, and there's no chance you're going to get around to reading all of them for most of you. Even better yet, sit across the table from someone for lunch today or this week that is from a different ethnicity and talk to them about what their experience is like. You don't even need to read the book. If you do that, I think you'd get the spirit of what the book is getting at. Listen from, embrace, talk to, hear from an African-American, an Asian, someone who is not you. We are the cultural majority in the United States. So that's why I'm not trying to single out only whites in this way. But I think it's helpful when you are in the cultural majority to be sensitive to and listen to the assumptions you might make, the things you might say that you are not realizing that are causing these barriers to stay up. Number two, it changes the way we pray. 
the way we talk to God. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Could you imagine if when I came home today, my kids started now and continued to say, Welcome home, Mr. Howell. Well, Mr. Howell, how was your day today? Would there be something off if they come out of the nursery and my little two-year-old son goes, Mr. Howell, Mr. Howell, instead of dada, dada, dada? Would any of you think, that's strange. That's a weird picture. That's what J.I. Packer's talking about. It's a weird picture when you and I don't come to God as sons and daughters. When we don't come and realize that God is our Father. Many, many of us in this room, the thing that needs to click, the penny that needs to drop, the thing that you need is to start praying and really believe that God is your Father and not just the judge and the almighty sovereign over the universe, but Father. The word crying here is a loud cry, a loud, like, anxious cry. Come weeping, come boldly before the Lord. Come asking things of him that only a kid could ask to the dad without feeling like, uh, he's going to say no. There's a great, great story about Alexander the Great and some peasant, some nobody comes up to Alexander the Great and says, Alexander, I know that you are wealthy. I know that you're generous. And so I'm going to ask of you something that no one else has asked. And he asked for some absorbent sum of money for some project he was working on. And Alexander turns back and he's like, absolutely, with joy, with gladness. You today, sir, in front of all of these people have honored me because you have presumed upon my generosity. You have presumed upon my character that I have wealth and that I would want to share that wealth. So yes, I'm going to give this to you. How many of you would that transform your prayer life if you started to presume upon God's generosity? God's love for you. How many of us don't pray because we're afraid that God's mad at us? That he's upset? That he's the angry, not father, not, not happy loving father, but the angry, grumpy old granddad. Get away. You know? Like he's just bitter and upset and give me my own space. Embrace the idea when you pray to pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father who art in heaven. Transcendent, up in heaven, hallowed be his name, absolutely, but still intimate. Father, I'm a child. Do you have both? Don't swing the pendulum where it's just cool. He's my papa. He's my daddy boy. And you just start getting all relaxed as if being casual is the height of intimacy. No, no, no. You can be intimate with the mighty God over all the universe and still be personal. Say, Father, the Father of heaven and earth, my Father. In fact, right after verse 6, turn with me, look and see. Right after verse 6, he changes. Throughout the majority of this passage, it's plural, plural, plural. And here in verse 7, he says, so you are no longer a slave in the singular, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's as if all this corporate family language about this corporate identity of there's no more distinctions between the cultural barriers, no more distinctions between the gender barriers, no more cultural distinctions between slave nor free. Everything is one. We're all one in the family of God, right? You. Like a good preacher pointing, looking right into some of your eyes and saying, you, you are a son of God. Do you feel it? That's what the whole idea of God not just sending his son, but sending his spirit so it comes into your heart. 
It's not just a legal, well, I'm now no longer a part of this family. I'm this family. It's realizing that's my home. Number three, it changes the way we talk to each other. Look at chapter four with me and just notice as we glance through these verses, the language for the way Paul talks to the Galatians. Brothers. Now here, by the way, unlike the chapter three section, I do think brothers here, it was very common to be seen as brothers or sisters. So brothers and sisters. There I think it's fine for us to make the distinction. We don't lose the idea. But brothers, sisters. Notice the family language all through this. I entreat you. Become like me. Be free from the law like I am because I became free from the law like you are. Look at the way that they treated Paul when he first came. Verse 13. They did him no wrong. He had some sort of sickness or illness. We have no idea what it is. There's no research whatsoever that's been done that has confirmed what this sickness is or ailment. He could have been disfigured in some sort of bodily form. Read Paul's story and you know that he was beat up a lot. So he could have looked kind of funny. He could have looked like an outsider, like some of the outside, like, oh, that's, that's one of those paralyzed or beat up or messed up people, like a poor, humble man. And what do they say? They didn't scorn him, despise him, even though that condition even brought him to, the go- to them and, and he preached the gospel there. They received him as if he was like sent from God and as if he was Jesus himself. So it seems like he had to even correct him. No, no, I'm not Jesus. I'm Paul. So he came with power. He, he came with a revelation from God. But they treated him with such respect and dignity, even though he had some sort of physical setback. He says, but what has come of all of this? I testify to you. You all were at one point would have done anything. You would have even gouged out your own eye, which some people think, oh, maybe he had an eye problem. He had like a messed up, mangled eye. Probably not. More than likely, it's just a metaphor, a phrase, you would have done anything. You would have cut off your arm for me, you know. But now, am I now your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? And then he starts in verse 17 to try and help them see. Do you see who these people are? These false teachers, these Judaizers that has been referred to throughout Galatians? They want to shut you out of the kingdom. I want to bring you in. They're just trying to puff themselves up. And then he says, I want to be present with you, my little children. And if this wasn't friendly enough, this wasn't family enough, personal and close enough, he then says, I'm like a mother who's in anguish of bearing children until Christ can be formed in you. It's like a pregnant woman who's feeling the pains of childbirth and he wants Christ to be born in them and formed in them like a mother caring for her children. And I love verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. I'm, I'm just perplexed about you guys. I don't get it. It's like hearing that opening story that I told and seeing the Russian kids go back on the second trip to Russia and be like, no, I want to stay in the orphanage. Mom and dad, I'd rather be cared for by the social workers in Russia and live in the dirty, terrible, awful circumstances. I'm perplexed. What what is your deal, guys? Do you see the way he talks to them, though? You see the lessons for us to learn. I wish I could be with you in present. Writing is good. Texting is good. Emailing is good. But it's better. It is much better for us to meet in person. So much is lost. If we don't meet in person, so much is lost when your pastor is just on a TV screen. And you don't even know who he is. The church is a family. The church is people who actually know each other. It's not just some talking head up here. If some of you are here and you're not part of the embassy family, we would encourage you to find a church where you can be a part of a family. From the very beginning, people have asked, well, how big do you want the church to get? We want to be a family. How big is the family going to get? Some families are big. Some families are small. We want to be a family. That's the vision of our church. We want to make disciples who love each other like family who care for each other like family, who entreat each other the way Paul entreats, who loves people even when they're straying and running away. Is that that too much, though? 
Or should you be an individual who has privacy and space and like, just leave me alone. It's just me and Jesus. That's what Christianity is. That's all Christianity is. It's just you and Jesus. I don't get that at all from this text. Any of it. Not the way Paul talks. Not the way they interact with him. Not the way that the language is in any part of the Bible. It's us. It's we. We care about the corporate group over our individual successes, individual failures. It's not just all about you. The way we see each other is different. The way we talk to God is different. The way we interact, talk to each other, talk like Paul does here, caring and reaching out for people. This is barely scratching the surface. Do you see why this could be 10 messages? We need to close. How is this possible? Who are we? We're sons. Does this mean anything? What does it mean? It means everything. How is this possible? It's possible because of the love of God. It's possible because of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 24, until the Christ comes, you're under the, the slavery of the law. Verse 25, until faith comes, till faith in Christ comes, that is. Verse 26, because those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, how does it come? Those who are baptized into Christ. That means they have a new identity. They have been put on Christ. They, they're clothed now with Christ and his righteousness and his priestly garments. His kingly robe is now our robe. We were naked. We were destitute. We were abandoned. And now we are clothed. We're in Christ. We're in the royal family. Not just Caesar's family. Oh, that just... Pfft. That's got nothing on the family of God. We're all one in Christ, in Christ, into Christ. Do you see how this happens? It's when people get their minds wrapped around the idea that we are in and identified by Jesus with a new identity, with new, a new outfit, a new jersey. You've been not wearing a jersey. You've been naked in your shame, as Genesis 3 talks about. But God clothes you with his righteousness. Galatians 4 and verse 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And then the most significant phrase here, so that, so that. Why did God send Jesus? Why did Jesus come to the earth? Why was he born of a woman, born under the law? Well, to redeem. To redeem and set free those who are under the prison slavery of the law. But why? Why does he want to redeem? So that, follow the flow here, so that you'd be adopted. So the coming of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the prayers of Jesus. Do you know why in verse 6 it says, Abba, Father? Abba is not Greek, it is Aramaic. So in the Bible you have the Old Testament, that's Hebrew. The New Testament is almost all Greek. And then you have a few random words in other languages. These ones in Hebrew in the Old Testament or Akkadian loan words, etc. So basically it's Hebrew and Greek. But every once in a while you'll get an Aramaic word. And here you have an Aramaic word, Abba. Why say Abba, Father? Because the way that this becomes possible for you to become sons and daughters and say, Abba, Father, is when you realize that Jesus became a son, born of a woman, and said, Abba, Father, here on this earth for your sake. I don't think it's a coincidence that he picks up an Aramaic word in the middle of his Greek sentence and says, Abba, because it was Jesus himself who spoke Aramaic in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14. My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Going a little further, Jesus fell on the ground, prayed that if it were possible that that hour the cup might be passed from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. The reason he says, Abba, Father, is because he wants you to see the cross. He wants you to feel the spirit of adoption as you meditate on the cross. He wants you to see that Jesus 
has had the father turn his face away from his son, Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world, born of the woman, born under the law, suffered under Pontius Pilate, took on all the fury of God's wrath as he drank the cup bitterly on the cross. The father turns his face away and he goes from Abba, Father, from one moment to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in another moment? Jesus was rejected from the family so you could be brought in and accepted. Jesus became an orphan so that you could be adopted. Jesus cried, Abba, Father, and had the father tell him, no, I will not take the cup away. So that you and I could cry, Abba, Father, and hear him say, yes, come home. When you hear Jesus crying, Abba, Father, my prayer is that the Spirit of Christ would come into your heart. And you will not just know intellectually, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. But you would know, you would know like you really know. And it changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this passage of Scripture and how rich it is, how glorious it is to know that we are sons and daughters. Thank you for the beautiful picture of adopting us into your family, poor orphans though we are. Your love is deep. Your love is deep for us. So we are going to pray now, God, that as we take the bread and cup, I pray that we will see the spirit of adoption descending upon us. We will sense the spirit of God falling fresh on all of us and that we corporately, we would be changed and transformed and renewed from one degree of glory to another to be more like Christ and have him formed in us. Thank you, God, for the gospel, the good news. In Jesus' name, amen.